Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Meadle, joined today by Chris Bouguet. How are you doing, Chris? I'm great. How are you, Rachel? I'm good. And you know, I'm really excited because we also have Lucas Stuber here today. I am here. I can't believe it. It's been, it's been forever. I know. Welcome. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. I really appreciate it. I've missed you guys in uh, recording with you. Of course, we're, you know, we're still in touch, but um, it's a blast from the past to be here and um, sure wish I could do it more often. We're really excited today because we're going to be doing a listener feedback episode. Uh, so that's why we invited Luke to come on over and to, to answer some of the listener questions that we get. We get so many questions from you guys. And thank you so much for being so supportive and reaching out to us. Um, just know that we get your questions and we put them on a very long Google Doc. Um, so we will eventually get to your question. Um, we just have a lot to, to get through. But yeah, so we're, we're really pumped for today's episode. So shall we just jump right in with Alexia? I think so. All right. So Alexia asks, do you have any recommendations for a system that works as a support for individuals with ASD, autism spectrum disorder, who are mostly verbal, but require verbal slash visual cues to use more functional language? I have two students who are doing great answering WH questions, expanding utterances, and decreasing echolalia with decreasing need for cueing while they have access to a device communication board or book in therapy. However, they don't have access to something like that at home or school, and it's not carrying over. And I find that making visuals for specific activities in therapy just won't cut it for actual day-to-day -day language growth. Should I refer them for an AAC eval? Are there books slash apps that are cost-friendly and families can access without an eval? I gave the families a communication board, but these students are beyond that, dot, dot, dot. So what do we think? That's such a cool question. This is this is really interesting and close to my heart. And um, I haven't been on the podcast for a while, so I'm going to talk for a minute, if that's okay. Because <laughs> um, boy, have I had a lot of students like this. I mean, this is the, this classic example of somebody who, um, you know, a student who's, who's highly echolalic, right? Maybe they have that um, set of phrases from, it could be media, it could be something they've read, it could be something they've heard that um, they use. Um, but don't create novel utterances often without this sort of external prompt, right? I've, I've always called what they're, what this you're asking for, Alexia, I've always called it a secondary communication device. I don't know if that's an official term in any way. I think that's just what I've started calling it, but really it's for, um, it's for those students that just sort of need a reminder of like, oh, right, there's this other word that I could be using. Um, I encourage uh, anyone listening, if, look into the research, uh, if, you, if you look into the neuro-linguistic research around semantic priming, it's really interesting. And there's some, um, some fascinating research that's been done on autism spectrum disorder, specifically in relation to echolalia in this regard. And the idea is that, and this is like going to be a horrible oversimplification, so forgive me anybody who knows what they're talking about, that, you know, if I say the word bat, for example, in my brain, a little tiny bit of electricity is going to lead towards the word man, because for me, Batman is heavily associated. For somebody else, it might be bat baseball or bat guano or whatever it might be. Um, but the principle of semantic priming is the idea that those kind of like a river, that the more electricity travels down the same path um, neurolinguistically, the deeper that channel gets and the harder it is to get out. Um, of it into a new pattern. 
Um, and so one of the theories there, and, and again, it's a theory, is that this could be functionally part of what's happening in autism spectrum disorder for these echolalic kids, is they just get a real deep channel for some reason. Um, and all it takes for them to get sort of get out of it and get into a novel uh, space in terms of language generation is that little nudge, you know, which can, can just be a fringe word prompt. It can be um, a set of phrases, uh, you know, any number of things. It could be a visual prompt from one of the yeah. other communication, uh, one of the other symbols on their board or on their communication device. The other thing that I think is important to think about is when you're thinking about children with autism and especially children who have a lot of echolalia, um, verbal prompts are my last resort because we know that children can imitate verbal prompts all day long. Um, and so that's what I love about bringing AAC for these students who are very verbal oftentimes, but like Lucas mentioned, they're using a lot of scripting. Uh, and they're using it functionally too. That's an important thing to, to remember is that these scripts are oftentimes used functionally. Sometimes they generalize to novel routines that are also, you know, it makes sense. Um, but the problem is that we're not teaching those foundational concepts, right? We're not teaching the, the words behind those scripts. Um, and so what I'm finding oftentimes with the children with autism who are saying lots of different things and combining, you know, sometimes three, four, five words into, into phrases, um, they're really not truly comprehending those abstract language concepts. Um, and that's where core words come in. And so, you know, I don't know how much of the communication board has been used, what words are on that communication board, but um, I would really try to deep dive into which words are actually spontaneous and novel um, that aren't part of a script. Because when you really break it down like that, I'm shocked sometimes to see uh, what my students are actually understanding, you know, receptively. Absolutely. And I, I, I bet I, my gut is you'll find that those words are the words that are motivating to them. This reminds me of that quiet, and this is not my story. This is a classic joke, right, about parenting of, um, oh, my, my kid just said their, their first two words together. And then you say, oh, what was it? And they say, happy meal. And it's like, no, to the, to the child, that is a word. They, they don't distinguish between these two different things. And it's sort of the same thing with these scripted phrases. I had a student years ago that would communicate very effectively with his family by referring to Sesame Street episodes. So he would say like Sesame 648 or whatever. And they knew that that was an episode about rain, right? So he's talking about the, but boy, let me tell you, for me working with him, that was hard. I was Googling Sesame Street all day just trying to figure out, so, which is interesting because on the one hand, that's very clever, right? And it's, and it's kind of neat, but it's also entirely non-functional, um, you know, when it comes to later life and, you know, in other contexts of communication. So, um, you know, to whatever extent, you know, part of the goal of what we do, right, is to create, uh, uh, you know, systems where people, uh, where, where users can create comprehensible utterances to unfamiliar listeners in the maximum number of contexts. Uh, you know, to that end, then yeah, I would absolutely agree with what, what you were saying, Rachel, that um, we need to introduce the core sort of um, foundational concepts of language. And part of that is just by straight up reinforcement of utterances, right? Like, you know, starting with cause and effect all the way up to breaking things down into pieces. I kind of see it as an association. So you have the Sesame Street episode that you said, and I think so many people, when they hear echolalia, their thought is about abatement. Okay, the strategy is we have to stop them from doing that. And what I'm hearing us talk about is let's correlate that Sesame Street episode with the concept of rain and wet 
and all the other language that can come in that language. Well, let's tie them together so that the student, that's a, it's a vehicle for teaching those concepts, is tying it to his background knowledge. Yeah, I mean, think about it. In many ways, Echo Ilya is actually an enormous strength of language, right? I mean, this is demonstrating incredible contextual memory and these other things. So in a strength-based manner, latch onto that and then just associate it with the functional language that you know that they'll need um, to describe those concepts. And just, I guess, the final talk for me, and then I'll, I'll stop, I swear, is just that this, uh, again, underscores something that I want to always repeat to people, which is that use of AAC is not going to interfere with development of typical language, right? So if you think AAC is a great option as a, like a, you know, a secondary prompting mechanism or whatever, um, do it. Absolutely. You're, you're losing nothing. If anything, maybe you're gaining a head start on literacy. Absolutely. And I think that using a communication board can be really valuable. Um, I oftentimes get asked the question, so when would you, you know, not use a communication board or when have they, because I think Alexia, she had mentioned that that's beyond him um, at this point. And so the one shortcoming, I think, of a communication board is when do you have children who are putting novel three to four word utterances together? Because you have to have a lot of working memory to touch an icon on a board and build a sentence beyond, you know, two to three words, um, which is why the high tech system is so valuable because you have that message window. So as you're formulating a sentence, you can keep referring back to what you've already said. Um, and so that would be my, my recommendation. Um, you know, if a child truly is putting spontaneous core words together in novel ways beyond three words, it's absolutely time for a device. Um, I would probably argue it's, it's, you should start a high tech system way before that. But, um, you know, that's one of the, the shortcomings of a communication board is that you really have to have strong working memory skills to hold on to that language as you're formulating and scanning and finding the words that you want to say. Um, and so just high tech systems make that a lot easier. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, the only the cautionary point I guess I would put in that story is that um, I, I had a student like this years ago who was very he was literate and um, I, I think he was seventh grade maybe and very very successful just using a predictive text keyboard uh, to create novel utterances. But we have to keep in mind that there's semantic priming embedded in predictive keyboards too, right? And so that is a, a useful maybe tool for a while, but. Eventually, that's going to end up reinforcing the same utterances over and over again in the same way. Did I? Does that make sense? Just yeah, I think so. The technology words. Yeah, yeah I, I think my own kids. I gave them word prediction just to play with. Right here, we have a, a tool called Read and Write for Google Chrome in our schools, and and uh, okay, this will help you be a better speller. Right, not even a communication tool, just typing. And what it can do is it predicts the words ahead, so they don't actually have to think about necessarily the next word. They can just recognize the next word, and it kind of builds the sentence for themselves. And I think that's what I'm hearing you say is that, okay, it's all, if, if the first letter you type in is P, it's going to give you a bunch of words that start with the letter P, and now you're not necessarily generating the word that you want. It's doing it for you, and it might be making a groove that you don't want to make in your brain. Right. That's exactly correct. Uh, yeah. And, or even if it is what you're trying to say, that then by successfully saying it, the system is going to then predict that in the future and keep reinforcing and create another echo, you know. So I'm not saying don't do it. I mean, these, this is useful potentially, um, but there's also a, uh, a question um, that's maybe a bigger one to address in a full episode sometime, if you guys want me back, about, um, about predictive language in AAC generally. Um, and especially at the emergent language stage uh, where you're going through an assessment for an example and when you're using a system that is predictive it's very easy to demonstrate a child that can create a three-word utterance that has absolutely zero meaning for them right um, sure especially relevant when you're thinking about 
you know, children who have impulse regulation problems. Like I put a predictive keyboard in front of those kids and they're like, you know, they're creating, you know, 15 word sentences, but they have no meaning. And I personally do that and send it to my wife on my iPhone. So I totally get it. I feel like we could build a whole episode around Alexia's question because there's one more point here that I'd like to touch on and that she says they don't have access to something like that at home or school and it's not carrying over. And so that makes me jump to my mind. Why not? Why is it? It seems like Alexia is a private therapist and that she's doing this uh, in her private therapy sessions. Um, But maybe it is time to pull the whole team together and say, hey, I'm thinking we need uh, something uh, that it it works in multiple environments to help both of these kids self-prompt. And I think this is telling me there needs to be a, a team meeting because a lot of times people are very open and willing to supporting these types of things across their individual sessions, across the school and the home environment. Um, but you need to kind of get everybody on the same page and make it a team decision. You know, here's what we're all seeing. What could we do? Um, and, you know, perhaps Alexia is the one who guides that that discussion, but then figuring out a system that really, you know, the the goal is that we're carrying it over across every setting. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. Should we go to the next question, guys? You ready? Okay. So this one comes from Elisa. I have a student who will likely be starting high school next year at a magnet program for an academy of gaming and mobile apps. I know it's cool, right? Game animation simulation programming. Game animation simulation programming. Awesome, right? Let's toss another fact out there. He's an iGaze AAC user with a PRC new iDevice. He's an amazing young man who I've worked with since he started pre-K at three. So what I'm looking for is help on what to do to prepare him, the team, the device, items we need to purchase. Typical high school I can do. Gaming is not my specialty. Anyone know stuff or know someone who does? This is a funny one for me because... Hi, Eliza. I know we already had this conversation. <laughs> so we, we actually talked about this on Facebook. Um, so I, I appreciate you reaching out, but I'm, I'm glad that we can have the conversation more generally. I mean, this is huge, right? We think about these, um, and, and this is a point at which, you know, I should make the disclosure, obviously, that I, I now, the reason why I've been absent from the podcast primarily is because I worked out for Toby Dynavox. Um, so what I'm going to say now, though, I want to make sure it's clear that I'm not saying on behalf of, of Toby, but I say that uh, just to clarify that eye gaze is kind of my thing now. And, um, and you know, there's this huge cohort of people that I, I hear from, some of them, you know, literally daily, who are basically, you know, folks with CP or have had a spinal cord injury or whatever, who are men or women in their late teens through mid-30s who are bored out of their friggin' minds, you know. Um, and that's been a huge shortcoming of um, of access, right? You know, I mean, you know, we think about um, about IDs for AAC, and you know, being able to fixate on a quadrant of sixteen by sixteen or whatever. I mean, that's technically not particularly challenging. But going into like Adobe Photoshop and clicking and dragging and and shading, and I mean, these these are things that you know, for even a typical adult, like I can't do that stuff. That requires manual dexterity that I don't possess. Um, so we're sort of at the at the infancy stages of of what is available for that, and I'm sorry to have to say that because I wish I had a better answer. Um, w- what he has uh, is actually a great start. Um, you know, PRC with new eye. I mean, this will this would run something like Windows Eye Control. This would run um, our uh, Toby Dynavox Windows Control. Um, either one of those uh, would give the ability to um, you know to to interact with with apps and, and such the way that, uh, you know, the way that a typical person would. So um, it's just, the pace is a little 
different, right? I mean, you have to kind of look at the icon for right click, look at the thing you want to right click on, and etc. Which works for many contexts, but is definitely less than ideal for, you know, like I have a lot of like dudes in their 20s that want to play video games. And um, if you're going to run around trying to shoot people with eye gaze right now, you're going to have a, a bad time because it's going to take you way too long to accomplish it. So, so all that being said, uh, what I would recommend, I mean, that device is certainly a starting point. Um, you also could look at adding um, a, a really any Windows-based computer, maybe something um, slightly on the high end, if that's what they're going to school for, uh, and then adding uh, iGaze peripheral, of which there's a, a ton of them on the market, um, both uh, you know in the consumer side, and then you know there are some that are slightly more expensive, either from us or from um, a, you know a number of other companies that uh, will do better in bright light situations and that sort of thing. And then what that would give them is uh, a kind of a more full featured computer experience because. Um, dedicated AAC devices like the one that he's using, they're not as powerful. And um, that's not because they don't want them to be. It's because there are literally heat and ventilation requirements and stuff built into the medical funding process that makes it so they can't be as powerful as a consumer computer. So all, all of that said, I, I will say that for, for my part, I, I'm actively working on this. So <laughs> hopefully ask the question again in a year and we'll have a much better answer. But um, I don't intend that as a commercial. Again, this is Lucas talking about it. So Lucas, let me ask you this, because you know this is sort of a, a thing I nerd out on, right, is, is gaming, and it's sort of, sort of a thing I've mentioned on the podcast before. I've Just a couple of weeks ago, sure. I had a session on uh, block coding and bots and starting kids at a very early age so that this guy, he, he is obviously, what he says, in high school, but I want every kid starting at, at preschool to start with block coding. And uh, so let me ask, do you have any experience with Scratch? Yeah, MIT Scratch, absolutely. Yes, and um, so do you know, like, would that interface would it would. for early kids to learn to use code? That's a really interesting idea. So what Chris is, and I, maybe you meant, I guess you mentioned this on a previous episode, but you're referring to MIT Media Lab's Scratch project, which is like a visual coding system. It actually was made by the same people that made um, Makey Makey and later founded Joy Labs. So if anyone's familiar with that, that's another adaptive um, sort of solution for some kids. That's a really good option. Um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the sort of eye control that I'm talking about, it's going to work with any browser-based anything, right? And, uh, and I think that, I, personally, I think that that's, Scratch is a good idea. Based on the age and the school that the student is going to, it might be a, a little low level, honestly. I mean, sure. I, I wonder, I mean, if they actually need like a, you know, like an actual develop, like an IDE developer environment, they also could, could use iGaze with that, certainly. Um, wow, geez, this question got deep. This is, there's yeah. lots of, I mean, this, we could go down this hole for a while, but, um, but I love that you brought up Scratch because that's, that's a perfect one. And, and, you know, it goes back to this whole other tenet, which I know I said on the podcast many times in the past, which is that in any sort of um, speech and language therapy, if you're not talking to the kids about what they're going to be talking about with their peers on the playground, then it's not going to generalize, right? Exactly. So, well, and like, like I've mentioned in the past that I feel like the future of education kids will grow up reading, writing, and coding. And so we want students who use AAC devices to be learning that coding from an early age as yep. well. It's too late by high school if you start learning coding. I mean, it's not too late. You can always learn more, but it's better if you get that earlier. And Scratch, by the way, if you heard us mention it now a bunch of times, it's all free. We're not talking about anything you have to buy. You can go play with Scratch right now. My own kids built in Scratch. Um, and you can make real 
a stuff in there, or you can make real simple stuff. So that's good to know that uh, someone with, who's using an eye gaze system using a browser-based technology could, or Windows-based technology could just use the, really is dragging puzzle pieces over and putting yep. them yeah, I can think of three different soft computer control software programs that would accomplish that. So that's, yeah, very good idea. Awesome. Should we go into the next question? I, yeah. These are all so fun. Do we have, okay, fine. All right. We're going to talk about Minecraft, man. <laughs> I know. And that's actually, we should, we should get the iMind folks on for, for an interview. All right, this next question comes from Gia. Hi, I was wondering if anyone has had any experience with a minimally verbal student who uses AAC beginning to present with disfluencies. And she put in parentheses blocks. His mother was the one to first bring it to my attention and I observed it as well during my following session with him. It appears to be only with some, not all, S-blends and words that he has previously said quite often without stuttering-like behaviors. When they occur, what could be common in behaviors look very similar to the facial expression he makes while stimming. His mother also shared that the first time she observed this, it was while scripting. I inquired if the line he is scripting is said with a stutter, but she's not sure. I'm wondering if it is a sudden onset of disfluency or a stim. I realize disfluencies typically occur during language development, and although he is older than five, could it be due to a language burst? Any feedback would be greatly appreciated. I, I really like this question. I think it's great. And, and, and how, you know, to um, Gia, yeah, I mean, that's fantastically observant of, of you and the mother to notice this. The, I guess the problem I have is that I don't feel like I can comment without seeing this myself. Uh, you know, this is kind of one of those deeply clinical things. Um, it's perfectly possible that it is a stimming um, response. It's also perfectly possible that they have presented with a disfluency. Um, I mean, that would be kind of a, a, a heck of a coincidence, but um, I, I don't feel like I could rule that out. So she, she mentioned not knowing whether or not this was true stuttering or just, you know, a language burst, which is true. We do see developmental stuttering, especially in preschoolers who are you know, have all this language coming and they don't have enough time to kind of figure out what to say. Um, we have fillers. We say, um, and you know, and like, and preschoolers don't have those types of interjections right away. And so what do they do? They repeat the words that they're saying. So I want to go, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go to the playground. Um, that's not true stuttering. That's just, you know, their little brain is thinking way faster than their words can come out and they can formulate. Um, when it comes to blocks, um, and by no means am I a fluency expert, by the way. Um, but when it comes to blocks, um, it's my understanding that that is never developmentally uh, appropriate, right? We're never seeing children who have a block. Um, so it does sound like it's true stuttering to me. Um, the whole layer of stimming, um, that's an interesting one. My, my but, thought is that he could be beginning an utterance and then being reminded of the stimming sensation and, and, and starting that instead of finishing the, I mean... But, but again, this is very interesting. I was a clutterer growing up. So I was, I remember I was, I paid a lot of attention in my fluency classes. Uh, in fact, I think I'm still probably a clutterer sometimes on this. Um, so, which if for those who are listening, that just means you have so much in your head that you talk over your own words, basically, you know, uh, you know, that, like you said about the, the preschooler saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, that is very often developmentally appropriate. What you said about blocks, that's absolutely true. I mean, they're, um, they're, that's not developmentally appropriate um, in, you know, in context that I'm aware of, but um, I don't think the etiology of, of why is clear. And I don't know that it's necessarily relevant in a lot of ways. I feel like it's like, does it change our treatment approach? You know? no. Right. Good point. I'm not sure. Um, what I would do if this was my, 
my kiddo on my caseload, um, I would assume that it was a block and I would start at least modeling um, some strategies like, you know, potentially using a, a slide, um, you know, so if it's S words and he's saying, you know, sandbox and he's stuck on that S, I might, you know, skip over that first consonant like I would if I were working with a, you know, fluency client, um, prolong that vowel. So um, sandbox. Um, and start modeling those types of things to see if that can help. I don't know. What do you guys think? I like that strategy. I also think it's interesting an AAC user. So when is he using AAC and when is he using his verbal? It's, she says that he's minimally verbal. So um, does he primarily think of himself as a verbal communicator or does he primarily think of himself as someone who uses his communication device? What's like, I think of myself as a verbal communicator, but of course I'm nodding and I use my hands and I use all these secondary and tertiary ways to communicate my thoughts. How does he envision himself? Because if he thinks of himself as a verbal communicator, then the AAC system might be the thing that you put in place as a secondary communication breakdown uh, tool. So I these blocks are, are, are bothering me, so I'm going to go over to my system and I'm going to find sandbox. I'm going to say that. Um, but if he's uh, primarily that, then, well, I guess it's the same. Like He could use that and occasionally fill in uh, communication breakdowns that are happening with his communication device with his words. Chris, I love the way you just framed that. I have to bring this up because I think it's so important. Um, you said, how does, what kind of communicator is he primarily? What does he view himself as? Oftentimes I think that some, you know, clinicians and speech language pathologists, like we try to make that call, right? We say, oh, he's mostly verbal or he's mostly an AAC user. Um, but it's really important to think about what does the student actually think for himself? I have a little guy with, with Down syndrome. He is definitely a verbal communicator, but he's not saying a lot of words, but he is trying to communicate verbally. Um, and so I think it's an important distinction. You know, we should not be the ones that are making that decision. We should really look at what the child is doing. How is the child motivated to communicate? you know, because I think that really does a nice job of framing it. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was we can, you know, of course, teach those strategies for fluency, um, all while modeling on the device, right? Using that as, okay, you know, it's not coming out, um, and really being open and talking with, with students about the disfluencies. Um, that was something that I, that I learned a long time ago, um, never having an elephant in the room, right? Well, there's a lot of awareness around stuttering and, um, just being able to talk openly about it. Like it sounds like, you know, sandbox is getting stuck right now. Um, let's go to our, our device so we can, you know, communicate that um, you want to go to the sandbox or whatever it might be. Um, so I think that you can kind of do both simultaneously. You can incorporate the, the use of the device through modeling um, while also modeling verbally. Um, the same thing you would do if a child wasn't, you know, presenting with stuttering. Um, you know, we would still be using our verbal language to kind of talk about what's happening. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Uh, thanks for saying that, because that's, um, I think, maybe one of the reasons I think of that way uh, when it comes to how to approach people and, and thinking about their own uh, metacognition or metalinguistics is based on working with other domains, meaning a lot of what we do in the schools when it comes to, let's say, reading or writing is to help students pick the tool that's right for them to become better readers and writers. And that's the like the role of the teacher is to go, why did you decide to write with a pencil on this? Or why did you choose to use your Chromebook on this? Or why did you choose to use text-to-speech? Or why did you use uh, word prediction? And get them thinking about, yeah, 
when do I make a decision about what tool I use? And I feel like that's a takeaway, a growth I have since we've started this podcast, listening to people who have, we've interviewed, is that our AAC users make those choices all the time. When am I going to use my voice if I'm a part-time AAC user? When am I going to use my AAC my primary AAC device? When am I going to use my secondary AAC device? When am I going to handwrite? And I think that's a role of a speech therapist or really all of us as uh, support personnel is to help people learn what tool to use in the given moment. And that ties back to, to our student here. All right. Next question is from Tina, who says, I've loved every episode thus far. Thank you so much, especially the ones when Lucas was on the show, I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but then she says, how about more on AAC and literacy and the roles SLPs can play to help students make games in communication and reading and writing with an integrated approach? Love this one. Love it. We really, as a profession, need to start supporting AAC and literacy way earlier, in my opinion. Um, I have been doing a lot of work in my own practice with getting kids um, starting to learn how to keyboard and type. Um, I use Bluetooth keyboards. There's a lot of really great apps that I'm using. Um, and I can't tell you how many times uh, I've, I've introduced the topic to parents, teachers, other clinicians, and they shoot me down right away. They're like, oh, we're not there yet. And I'm like, okay, okay, well, let's just like, let's start incorporating it. You know, I'm a really big believer in incorporating literacy very early on. Um, and we'll just see. And every single time with all the students that I've worked with, they've made amazing gains. Um, and so I just think it's really important to start thinking about how can we start incorporating things like keyboarding into the activities that we're doing. Um, it's so simple to start working on. Um, I was just seeing a kiddo for a uh, consult in my office and he is using a kind of a, not a robust AAC system. And so family came to me because they're like, we have, he has such high, you know, understanding. We really want a system that helps support him um, in a better way. And after meeting him for five seconds, I realized, absolutely, we need to get him on something more robust. Um, but anyway, we were using his old system, and he was trying to um, talk to me about his dog. And um, so we were transferring. I was doing some trialing with him on a more robust system, and I, of course, didn't have it programmed for him. Um, so we just we pulled the keyboard up, and we started typing it. And it was so cool because I started. I said, okay, we're going to – I forget what his dog's name was. Um, Fluffy. We'll say Fluffy it was, was the name. And and I said, okay, let's spell it. It should be it. the name if it's not the name. It should, right? That's a good dog name. You know, let's start spelling it. F. And he, I started, he finished spelling his dog's name and his dad was shocked. His dad was like, what? And I'm like, see? <laughs> so I feel like it's so important to just start, you know, exposing kids to the keyboard and to letters and you know, letter sounds and all these things, because you never know, you never know, you know, how quickly something could solidify for kids. Um, and even if it doesn't solidify, that exposure is so important. This is a huge question. This is a, this is this question I would argue is, you know, probably pretty central to, um, to AAC and, in communication as a concept, right? And and to me, um, oh boy, this is going to be another monologue, isn't it? Darn it. Go for it. Go for so, it. I mean, it, it, it comes back to sort of the nature of language and the nature of abstraction and symbolic representation, right? That, you know, the, the most concrete sort of example of, of a dog is a dog, right? Like physically touching Fluffy the dog. Um, and then another level of abstraction is a, is a picture of Fluffy the dog. 
And then there's a drawing of Fluffy the dog that is identifiably Fluffy. And then there's just a drawing of a dog, which then could stand in for any genus of dog, right? And then there's the letters, D-O-G, spelling the word dog, right? And then there's the actual sounds. We simultaneously are more abstract in the way that we're representing the concept of dog, but we're also more flexible in the ways that we can apply it, if that makes any sense. So like Fluffy can only be Fluffy. But dog, especially for like a three-year-old, could be any four-legged animal for some period of time, right? So one of the ideas behind um, using symbols even in AAC is to start to foster that sort of symbolic representation component and also so that you can capture multiple meanings, um, you know, in emergent language. Now, that being said, this is a very young field, right? And we only have, there's basically two major researchers in the field of AAC and literacy, Janice Light and Karen Erickson. I wouldn't say that they necessarily are, are opposed to each other, but I would say that they have different philosophies, right? Um, uh, you know, one way to conceptualize those philosophies and to Janice or Karen, if you're listening or anyone who knows, again, I am oversimplifying this, um, is sort of the idea of part to whole versus whole to part uh, literacy instruction. So, and this is a question even in typical education. So part to whole literacy instruction is, the, is kind of the idea of phonics, right? Of learning letter, sound, relationships, and then how those construct words, and then those how, how those words then represent these sounds that you've been hearing of, oh, D-O-G, D-O-G, dog, dog, oh, dog, that's fluffy. Another version is hold apart, which is the idea that you're exposing kids to visual language, right, to orthography, which is just the, literally the letters, and that then moving backwards from there, gradually associating it um, with sounds. Um, I don't know that we uh, know the answer in terms of which one is right. And in fact, my typical philosophy in all things in life is that it probably lies somewhere in between. But it has huge implications for AAC. Um, one example of that, for example, is, is that we're, we're sort of inherently always taking a hold apart approach, right? So we're always giving kids the full model of a word, usually underneath the symbol uh, or, or whatever it might be, um, which they then hear you know, the, they, they hear the audio output. Um, there's very little people that are actually doing explicit like phonics instruction um, from an AAC standpoint. So if that's the right way to go, we're kind of not doing it, right? Um, there's a whole nother argument um, just around symbolic representation generally, right? So it's all well and good when you're talking about like dog and you have a picture of a dog, but what about the picture for the word and? Or what about the picture for the word in? or or, or you know, typically core words, basically. You could argue, I think, successfully that the pictures that we use as symbols are just as abstract as the letters that we would write for those words. And so in associating symbols with core words, we're actually just sort of doubling the burden in terms of what the student needs to learn about that language. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of people who believe in just turning off symbols for core words, right, but using them for, for fringe. Um, I'll say, you know, coming from a little bit of an industry insider uh, perspective, um, internally, uh, we estimate that only between 7 or 10% of symbol-based communicators actually achieve literacy. Um, and that's, you know, again, we don't have a huge amount of time of data. This, you know, the field of AAC basically started in like 1962. So, um, you know, who knows? But to me, that implies uh, there's, there's two different possibilities that aren't mutually exclusive, right? One of, one of the possibilities is that we're doing it wrong. And that's probably true, right? We're going to look back in 20 years and be like, oh, it's like the Middle Ages when we were bloodletting and, and doing hold apart reading instruction or whatever. 
But another possibility, frankly, that and I, I know this is a little bit controversial, but I think it needs to be said, is that we are using the wrong definition of success, right? Because by placing literacy in this primacy role in terms of an outcome, what that does sometimes for parents, for example, is then when their 16-year-old is still at a requesting stage, they feel they failed, right? Because all they see in the advertising and the blogs are these perfect outcome stories of someone giving a valedictorian speech, you know, with their device and whatever else, when really, you know, they need to be able to celebrate the fact that their daughter can now tell them that they're in pain and these sorts of things. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't be shooting for literacy, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't presume competence and all of those obvious things, but I'm also saying that we need to, um, we need to think about the whole way that we're approaching it in a very serious, systematic manner. We do not have enough research. We do not have enough people paying attention to it. Um, and we also need to focus on more than just literacy. Well, maybe, Lucas, so well said, first of all. That was a long one, sorry. To decompress there. Maybe there is enough research if you think about reading just as in reading and that kids with AAC are really no different than other kids except they're using their their device and maybe they don't have a way to do that that, um, part-to-whole instruction. Meaning, uh, are there many systems that when you go to the keyboard, of the system, you know, there's, let's say there's the, the symbol array, and then you hit the button that takes you to the keyboard array, and you hit the S button, does it go S, or does it go S, right? And if there was a, a if there was a way to make that the phonemic representation, then maybe we'd have the ability to start teaching that in a kind of a similar way we would be teaching it to someone who is verbal. What are your thoughts? Yep. Absolutely. Well, and that's, I mean, that approach has been pursued. Like, in fact, there's even a, a um, there's something out there called called ALL or Accessible Liter- Literacy Learning that is a, a phonics instruction program. It's designed even for iGaze users. Um, so, th- I mean, there's stuff out there. And, th- and what's interesting to me, though, is that I hear success stories on both sides. And my suspicion is that typically developing children don't acquire language universally. I mean, I put that the wrong way, but I, I mean, clearly there is a progression of language acquisition, but you know, some people just have different styles of learning and um, you know, that's gotta be just as true of, of our, um, you know, of our users. Yeah, maybe um, it's just what you're exposed to, you know, but then if what you're saying though, I mean, cause you, you sort of made the argument that um, we should be approaching this in the same way as, um, as we would, you know, typically developing uh, literacy instruction, then that to me is a counter argument against uh, core word instruction in some ways. How so? Because I mean, whose who's first, first word is in, right? And I'm just saying controversial things for the conversation here. Don't. No, 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 no. Aggressive. No, here's how I think of it: is that core words are not the same as first words, right? So, yeah. so if you had, I think if you draw circles, there would be a there'd be a huge overlap. Uh, that that soon those words come out. But you're right; the first words are mom and dad and dog, um, and that <laughs> maybe want that. But so, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that those, those are uh, counter arguments, you know, and when it comes to reading, there is a huge overlap between core words and those early sight words, which I think is what we're, we're getting at here. And I, this might be in my head, but I believe that at one point I programmed a, a keyboard on Proloquo that had the um, phonemic sounds Maybe it wasn't on Proloquo, but at some point, I believe that I did that. Um, And it was a very successful approach um, that has really helped a student that I was working with. Um, But I I mean, I completely agree. I think that's a really great idea. And 
let's ask the listeners, go yes. to our Facebook group and write down the different uh, apps and systems that allow phonemic awareness or have phonemic representation on their on their system. And we'll make a list. And then we'll have that list that we'll be able to refer to do our feature matching and say, well, okay, we want we want something that's phonemic awareness, that has phonemic awareness, we can put that on the list. There's another aspect I want to touch on here just before we wrap up, which is that she asked about the, uh, and the role of the SLP can play to help students make gains in communication. So I want to talk about a quick strategy that this therapist could use, and that is slightly restructuring their schedule to go into whatever room that the student is in every day for one week and do predictable chart writing. Uh, that would be a way to model uh, literacy every day. And you might have to be the coach. Okay, so this is what we're going to do all week long. And I'm going to read, or I'm going to be the leader of this for one week. And then I go back to my old schedule because teacher, I've modeled for you. Uh, but the idea would be like on Monday, everyone, we have a chart up behind it that says, uh, I like, and then you point to somebody. Uh, and then uh, the next person you say, well, I like, and they say pizza. You know, so real, real quick, I would go, um, I like, and uh, Lucas would say? Bread. I don't know. I, I, was, I couldn't think of something funny. I was trying. <laughs> Fluffy. I like bread. Um, and then may, maybe Rachel would say, I like pizza. And so we'd go around the room uh, filling out this chart. And then on Tuesday, and that was just, a, just one little activity, maybe 10, 15 minutes of doing that activity. And then on Tuesday, we would uh, take those same chart that we wrote, wrote those words out and we would highlight them. Let's find all the words that start with L because our core word is like, right? So oh, like is, here's like again and here's like again. Um, and we just highlight those words. And then on, on Wednesday, we do like an occupational therapy exercise where we take those words and we cut them up. All right, everybody, let's cut, those, cut around them. And then on Thursday, we get up and we move around where I give Lucas I and I get like and Rachel gets pizza. And we have to put them in order, like with moving our physical bodies around. And then on Friday, we take those same words, I like bread, I like pizza, and we make a storybook out of them. And using that sort of flow, you could design a literacy activity. You could build in a letter yep. literacy activity every day of the week. Like I said, as the speech therapist, you might need to model what to do during that time. But once you do it one week, then they, the, the teachers could be up and running. No, that's perfect. This is how you can tell that you're a seasoned educator, that I went off about this academic theory and you gave a practical, useful thing. And that is perfect because that's exactly the right example of multimodal instruction. It's getting the kids moving. It's, it's, do, it's hitting all these different targets from OT to SLP to, you know, the reading uh, specialist and, and everything else. Um, so you're involving the whole team. Um, I think that's a great way. And, and here's the other thing, I, I guess, if we're, because I know, I know we're kind of out of time to close with. I remember when I was in practice and, um, and, and even, you know, more recently, people will ask me like, well, what's the right way to read to my child or to read with my child? And my answer is to read with your child. Like there is no parent ever has screwed that up. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, yes, you can sit there and you can, we can tell you some tips about how you can have the device out and do some modeling and, you know, sure. Some phonemic awareness. But just read with your kids, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's the first step. And that's, you know, that's how we see a lot of typically developing kids just magically flip the switch one day. So don't ever sit there guiltily feeling like you're not doing enough. Because um, anything you're doing at all is, is helpful. Exactly. Just spend time with your kid. Enjoy them. And do that with reading a book. 
Uh, well, thank you again so much for having me back. Uh, this was a wonderful conversation and really reminds me of um, how much uh, fun it is to talk to you guys. So I hope I can come back soon. Absolutely, Lucas. Anytime. We totally miss you and we, we, we so appreciate you coming on. We'll have you on for the next listener feedback episode. Let's do it. Thanks for listening to Talking With Tech. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.